Welcome to the Five Foot Nomad Podcast. I am your host, Shane Hazen. Coming up on this episode, we're discussing whatever happened to George Lucas's post-retirement experimental films. Those of you who might be familiar with George Lucas have known that he long promised that he was going to return to his uh, film school roots forever. And if you also follow George Lucas, you know that never happened. Joining me on this episode is Dale Pollock, who, amongst other things, being a film producer, film professor... And journalist Dale also wrote Skywalking, the life and films of George Lucas, the first biography. Uh, so before we get into that, uh, what I watched this week. Uh, so the biggest rewatch for me was I um, rewatched the A Personal Journey with the Martin Scorsese through American movies, which uh, I just hadn't seen for a long time. Uh, I've I've spoken previously on here about my ambivalence over Scorsese seeming to be the only unimpeachable opinion the internet seems to listen to, like the one that combines both the trolls and, you know, like New York film critics. But I haven't rewatched it in a long time, partly for a few reasons. It's running length. It's it's a long movie. And it's it's a co-writing and co-directing credit. Uh, it keeps, keeps it a little... Relegated to, I guess, uh, lesser Scorsese documentary. If you're familiar with the film, basically Scorsese's a talking head and co-wrote everything. So the montage isn't as intensive as his other documentaries, say like his ones on Dylan or George Harrison, or even his great one on Italian cinema. Uh, recently, I was in a conversation with a friend, and I mentioned that for American film, it's generally considered that the 50s and 80s were the worst decades for American cinema. And my friend asked if I agreed with that. Uh, watching Scorsese talk about, uh, especially in his section on war, um, all those forgotten movies that appeal to him at a formative age, it's hard to go against the 50s. Maybe maybe that's a bias of my own against the era I was raised in. Maybe it's the phenomenon where we only remember the best and ignore the sheer amount of junk history's already forgotten. Uh, I've been waiting for um, one of the movies mentioned on there, uh, murder by contract to come on TCM. Uh, I might have to go to um, YouTube for that. But um, it just gave the rewatching the doc gave me a lot of titles to watch. What was also nice for having waited so long in between seeing them over the years is just independently, I'd come across a lot of these movies too. So yay, me and more explorative watching. Uh, speaking of TCM, the best movie I saw this last week is from 1931. Uh, I heard it recommended by both Yomo del Toro and Joe Dante. It's the movie James Whale directed right before he made Frankenstein. It's called Waterloo Bridge. It's a distinctly pre-code film. In fact, there's a version from 1940 with Vivian Lee that sounds postcode, let's just say. The version I saw stars Mae Clark, who also had her other two big movies of her career in 1931. TCM's bio reminded me she's the woman in Jimmy Cagney smashed in the face with a grapefruit in The Public Enemy, along with uh, she was Dr. Frankenstein's bride, or fiance, I can't remember, in Dr. Frankenstein. She plays in a in Waterloo Bridge, she plays a chorus girl who has to resort to prostitution during World War One. Uh, when her and a Canadian soldier start to fall, fall for each other, she tries to keep all this from him, and some of the plot beats uh, do get a little, I guess, repetitive. Uh, but what a just absolutely amazing, natural, charming, vulnerable performance from Mae Clark! Like it's it's just so 
that level of sound-based naturalism from 1931 in a movie star performance is just it was it was something to behold but as for this episode um george lucas um he's been making these promises since way before the prequels that one day he'll retire and get back to his avant-garde films so much so that uh whenever revenge of the sith came out in 2005 Wired ran an article by Steve Silberman called Life After Darth that we referred to a few times in this conversation. And I remember when that article came out, it was not, I thought it was refreshing that someone addressed it, but Lucas had been talking this for years. Now, if you've seen his very first feature, THX 1138, or any of his college shorts, almost all of which are on YouTube, you understand this isn't a commercial dilettante pretending to be artsy after having destroyed American cinema with uh, along with Steven Spielberg in the mid-70s. Like, I'm, I, I am a Star Wars kid, and... Um, Watching those movies over and over was what taught me film grammar. I, I remember we had, uh, I, I would have been six or seven, and my dad for, got uh, our copy of Star Wars from Columbia House that I watched over and over and over. And I remember, you know, I'd get up on Saturday morning before anyone else in the house would get up, put it on, watch it by myself. And I remember one day watching a scene, and it was a shot reverse shot. And I remember thinking when they got to the reverse shot, I was like, distinctly thinking, shouldn't there be a camera there? Like how? And then I being six and not being having my imagination of the world be that relegated to actual physics, I guess. I just like, well, camera must be invisible. That's how that works. Uh George Lucas. Also, I mentioned the conversation as an editor. If I had you can't it's hard to say someone's a best editor at something it's always been the problem with the awards but if i had to nominate someone in film history as the greatest editor you know there'd be a lot of filmmakers turned directors that would probably get nominated like hal ashby or david lean um but the one i'd probably go with would be george lucas um the other reason i really wanted to have this conversation is being the Star Wars kid, I've always liked his, uh, the game Lucas talked about wanting to make broader movies and wanting to change the art form. Uh, especially he just, the reception of the prequels really seemed to destroy his reputation. And Pollock kind of surprised me, taught, said that Lucas was so personally offended by the reviews that that killed any last passion he had for directing. And this is a man that already spent 20 years not directing because he had, you know, panic attacks directing uh, Star Wars in 77. And it was always felt like that was a great loss of those 20 years. So now, and for so many people, it seemed like the prequels just turned George Lucas into a, from one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, who's seen maybe a little bubbled up uh, to a joke. And just, it's a dis massive dismissal of the massive filmmaking talent the man had. And well, yes, I get it. The prequels don't, they have bad dialogue. He doesn't seem as interested in chemistry between people sometimes. Um, you know, it's always it's an extension of the faster, more intense methodology he's, he, he seemed to have had always. Um, uh, he, there's the long theory that his collab collaboration streak wasn't as strong anymore. I get it. But 
one of the things I revisited before this episode was I rewatched the documentary, and I mentioned it in there because Dale's in the documentary, uh, The People versus George Lucas, which, as I also say in the conversation, has aged terribly as this image of entitled bullying fans who take ownership of something and just make their creator insane and this, we don't mention in the conversation things like Ahmad Best recently admitting that he was driven to suicidal ideation because of the prequels reception I mean you could read up on the what the prequels have done to the life of Jake Lloyd and also this week seen as we're I think the fourth episode has just come out of Obi-Wan and my opinions on the Star Wars TV shows the Disney Star Wars you have to acknowledge that I don't know if this is that popular of opinion. It's my opinion that um, uh, especially the Disney Star Wars makes you miss George Lucas just because there was a singular vision behind it. And it was also there was more of a, a scarcity and preciousness of it as opposed to these Disney Star Wars are just giving fans what they want to diminishing return after diminishing return. We've gone from like after solo, like that we're not even, they're not even interested in making movies. It's just down to TV shows. And they're how many bad TV shows away from being like, let's take a bigger break and just burying this thing into the ground. Uh, but the funnest part of this conversation is Dale's uh, speculation. It just warmed my heart that perhaps the question at heart of this this conversation, is George Lucas making his own personal uh, experimental films? Dale thinks he probably is. He's just not showing them to anybody. Warns my heart. As I mentioned, Dale Pollock is a journalist who's previously written for Daily Variety, Los Angeles Time, Life, Esquire, on top of writing Skywalking. He's also a film producer, and he's previously taught at USC and University of North Carolina School of the Arts, which we briefly discussed, and here's our conversation. Here we are. Four, five, four. Five, four. Yeah, yeah. Did you see the, uh, I guess, the uh, Obi-Wan trailer this morning was the big thing they released? No, I didn't see that. Yeah, do you I mean do you keep up on the Disney Star Wars stuff? To a degree. I mean, I I enjoy The Mandalorian and Boba Fett. Those are pretty much the two things that I really think they've done well. I was never the biggest Star Wars fan to begin with. You know, this book came about, my book came about because a publisher came to me. Okay. And said, "Would you write this?" And I said, "Well, at least I could be objective because I'm not a huge Star Wars fan." I, I certainly understood why it was popular. It wasn't really my kind of film that much, but you know, it's when when uh, when, when the publisher came to you, were you were you working at Daily Variety at the time? No, I was at the LA Times. Okay, okay. I mean, and I had been recommended. Actually, they had approached the film critic for the LA Times, Charles Champlin. Okay, and he didn't like Star Wars, and he didn't want to write a book about Star Wars. Okay, so he sent them to me. How long was the process? The writing process. Uh, very quick, actually, because I was trying to time it for the release of Return of the Jedi. Wanted the book to come out at around the same time. We pretty much did that. So I did all the interviews and wrote the book while I was working full time. So that was that was really a challenge. I wrote the book pretty much all through 83, and it was published in 84. Okay. And is this the, fir- this is the first George Lucas biography? It was. 
I don't think anybody else had the access to him again that I had. I did almost 80 hours of interviews with him. But it was technically unauthorized. He just allowed you to. Exactly. Um, and that was, you know, a difficult thing to achieve. But I had some strong people vouching for me. Spielberg vouched for me because I knew him. Sidney Gannis, who had run Lucasfilm for a while as its COO. Also, I knew him for a long time. And their message to George was the same message I had, which is, look, if you don't cooperate, I'm not going to do it because what's the point? And if I don't do it, someone else will. And that someone won't care if you cooperate. They'll just write it off the press clippings. So you can either have significant input in the book or you can just be a victim. I... um. Uh, as I'm an editor and uh, one of my my um, one one editor I'm fascinated with who I also am curious what she would have done if her career continued is Marsha Lucas. Of course. And she uh, was his secret weapon. Yeah, it, it seems like it. Um, I had read in Brian J. Jones's book that one of the reasons they mentioned a line in there that he again, she, I, I'm very fascinated with Marsha Lucas. But I also want to be sensitive because it's clear that their divorce is a private thing that right. was really destructive for both of them. But in the book, he writes that that was what he wouldn't go to uh, marriage therapy. But one thing he got talked into doing was opening access to you and her so that she, she could relive all the good times of their lives. Yes, that's true. Of course, he never disclosed that to me at the time. I mean, I, I felt a little foolish when my book came out because I painted a very rosy picture of their marriage, which is what he painted for me and what she painted for me when I interviewed her. So when I heard that they were breaking up, I just felt, man, how did I miss this? You know, how did I not see that this was coming? And I absolutely did not. They presented as a very happy, collaborative couple. I mean, she definitely had her own career aspirations as an editor, and I don't think he was tremendously supportive of those because he wanted to have a family. I mean, she did and, two Scorsese movies. She did Taxi yeah, Driver. And, and she would have done more if she had made herself available. But she felt, obviously, an overwhelming loyalty to him and to cut whatever he wanted her to cut. So... Um, yeah, one of my very strong theories is that his career, his his life as a creative filmmaker took a nosedive after her departure. Okay, so let's rewind. I mean, um, the real reason I wanted to do this is because I wanted, um, I, just before we got, we, we, we set up and hit record, I spent the whole day or afternoon Going through, I've seen clips of them, but I don't think I've ever sat down and watched all of George Lucas's student films and the stuff he right. made before THX. Yes. But what little clips I've seen of it, I always admire the crap out of. And Well, let me just tell you one thing. I taught a class in short films Okay. at my school. And it was a, it's a film conservatory. Students are serious when they're there. And it was a freshman class, three hours every week, nothing but short films. We would screen and talk. I screened the, the Lucas short films. They were derided, hated, made fun of. I was shocked by today's film students. What did the students say? They said, 
these are stupid, they're amateurish, they're simplistic. The only one that they liked kind of was the car one. Yeah, that's because they they thought that was interestingly shot and edited. But Freiheit, some of the other ones, and the student THX was voted the least popular short in the class. Huh. Um... So I, I was surprised that this is how contemporary young filmmakers regard his student work. When I showed the student work of Zemeckis, it was far better received. Was the class into, um, I guess, experimental stuff? At no, all? I showed a wide variety of shorts. Experimental, um, traditional narrative, animated, um, really all different kinds. From Norman McLaren, I showed his films. Okay. You know, I mean, it was a very wide variety of films. I think for someone like me who grew up in this a little er, earlier than apparently your students of <laughs> that sensibility, um, there was always this idea that main, between American Graffiti and Star Wars, that Lucas found an interesting way of taking, I mean, I'm obsessed with the high-low hybrid, the ways that good, good Hollywood filmmakers do that. And Lucas found a lot of experimental avant-garde stuff, but applied it to some really poppy his childhood loves the things that engraved right. early and you know um the documentary sensibility in both those movies yes and, and you know i was glad you sent me that article that you did because i had never seen that okay and i will be honest with you he never mentioned that film 21 hyphen 87 really never mentioned it we had a lengthy discussion about films that were influential on him he never talked to me about going to the um, experimental uh, theater in San Francisco or the art theater in L.A., and he never talked about watching experimental films prior to his arrival at USC. Okay. So uh, I was kind of, and I interviewed John Plummer also, and he never mentioned that stuff. John Plummer is what I was going to mention. So, okay, so the, the article I'm referring to, I... I remember always hearing these stories that Lucas, after Star Wars was done, was always just waiting for an opportunity to start making the experimental films again. Something like, because THX, this feature and all his college shorts, as much as he wanted to apply this to a, a, pop, a popcorn film and do something more interesting, are just non-narrative, uh, barely verbal, montage-oriented. I, I still, as much I mean, much as I love an editor like Marshall Lucas, there's if you if you tie my hands and ask me to name a best editor of all time, which is impossible because the whole thing with editing is you have to see what they use. George right. Lucas and his sense of montage and these early things are amazing. So you were just, I, I agree. Just waiting for him to do it. So anyway, this article from 2005 by Steve Silverman called life after Darth that was published in wired magazine. Even when this was published, I felt like we were already aware that he's supposed to be come one day making it. And this article was really fascinating because it has quotes from like Walter Murch saying that, yes, I think he has to admit he George Lucas is in a bind and people started automatically or s s acknowledge maybe he's never going to do these movies. Well, Shane, I'll give you my theory why okay. he never has. And now for one thing, and this is something that I think is critical to remember how intensely private Lucas is on many levels. And he may well have made numerous experimental films that he has simply not shown to anybody else. 
And I think that is a distinct possibility. Because one of the questions I was going to ask, is he going to do this kind of, I found that I heard this quote the other day. Uh, apparently, it's an old Paul Schrader quote that there's in cinema, there's no Emily Dickinson's. Do you think George Lucas is going to release a bunch of stuff after his death? He told me that if he didn't think what he made was either good or interesting, no one would ever see it. Okay. He told me that. Okay. So, uh, you know, he also said to me, I went back and reread my final chapter with him. Okay. Um, he also said, I'm tired of painting the Sistine Chapel. I want to do little four-inch or five-inch canvases. So that's an interesting way for him to approach that idea. But again, there is no evidence in the record that he has ever made any of these films or that they've ever been shown anywhere. And I think you can really contrast him with Coppola who did go out and make four terrible films. I'd like Tetro. Tetro has got some stuff to good Tetro stuff is the best, but Twixt is embarrassing. I have, uh, I hate to say it, I've stayed away from Twixt because of everyone complaining about it. I was, he came out with a book at the same time called Live Cinema about wanting to re-edit on the fly that I found right. interesting. But again, I still haven't seen, I still have stayed away from Twixt. Yeah, I just think, you know, that the train has passed him by. And he's living out, in a way, thanks to his successful winery and whatever the financial ups and downs in his career, he ended up as a wealthy man, uh, both because of the real estate he owned in Napa uh, and the fact that he's been able to license his name in products all over the world. Um, what if... Uh... I've had frequently on the podcast a friend who runs a Coppola podcast where they're going through Coppola's uh -huh. filmography and um, it's AJ Gonzalez and Brian Connolly. And their big thing is they drink a Coppola wine before they talk each movie. Um, Dale, I got to be honest. I'm, I'm really, I think we're, we're melded minds here. Like if I could show you my note sheet right now, you're just jumping to all these different things I wanted to talk about. I'm glad. Well, good. I'm glad you're thinking the same thing. Um, Okay, so let's 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 rewind back to the article. One of the key we talk I, on the podcast we've talked about uh, Arthur Lipset in twenty one eighty seven. We did an episode on the supposed uh, potential. We were trying to explore what Lucas might have used from Jack Kirby to influence Star Wars, and mm -hmm. we did some about. And the Force is mentioned in twenty one eighty seven. Right, but, I saw that. Yeah. But more than anything else, I think it applies to this, the experimental stuff, because um, I think what what's the oh, uh, look at life is the one that I think 2187 of Lucas's shorts and most resembles. And mm -hmm. I think look at life was like, I think I think in one of those zoetrope documentaries, they say that it was just a camera test that in film school that he just started going crazy on. Um, but there's all these um, in the article. They also de detail that um, John Plummer, who was his childhood, John Plummer. Right. Would you explain who John Plummer is? Yeah, he was probably his best friend when they were growing up together in Modesto. They lived in the same neighborhood and, and they just hung out all the time. And he continued a business relationship with John even after his success in Star Wars. What, what was the business relationship? Uh, it was his real estate person. Who helped him secure the let? Yeah. Um. And he and as far as you know, they're still in contact. I, I would imagine so. I you know look, 
when after my book came out, um, George, I believe, regretted many of the things he had said to me. And so um, he was not the biggest fan okay. of my book, even though he had to acknowledge that everything I quoted him saying, he had actually said. I guess that answers my question. Your last update on this was 99 for Skywalking. Yeah. There's no new edition coming up, coming up soon? No, and he wouldn't speak to me for that updated edition either. Okay. You know, and honestly, you know, I worried, Shane, when I was writing the book that I was going to be accused of just being so good to Lucas and so um, uh, forgiving of him of all of his, that this was going to be a really perceived as a pro Lucas book. And I was really trying hard to not have that happen. I wanted it to be as objective as I could make it. And the reviews of the book confirmed some of my fears where people said, oh, you know, he's just, he's up Lucas's ass. He got all these interviews. But the person who didn't see my book that way was George Lucas. I mean, it's every, everything about Lucas since then has said that divorce period was just the worst period of his life. So it, I mean, just even having and it's as private as you've described him as being and everyone else has, it's got to be anyone. And, you know, it's like if you have a spring bottled up, right, and you pull the rock away and the water gushes out, that was after one or two days of really awkward interviews, uh -huh. he relaxed. And once he relaxed, I couldn't stop him talking. Okay. That's how we went from a planned 40 hours of interviews to 70 hours of interviews. Because obviously... he just kept talking. And as long as he was going to keep talking, I was going to keep recording and using material for my book. Uh, that's a lesson so... I could learn, I guess. Uh, stop talking and let people talk. <laughs> <laughs> So in the article, it, it describes that Lucas is his um, kind of treated himself as um, a savant who watched TV as a child more than anything else. And when he stumbled at USC, all the movies he jumped into were completely revealed to him. But Plummer tells a story, different story of, I guess, towards the end of high school, they would make these trips into the Bay and occasionally even down to L.A., but they would go see... Um, Bruce Bailey's uh, Canyon Cinema, where he would show stuff from people like uh, uh, Jordan Belson, Stan Brackett. Yeah, Canyon Cinema was very famous. It was well known as this you know, place for independent art films. Uh, but it was definitely art, art, art films. Okay. Films as art, not films as commerce. I just saw Bruce Bailey, Bailey died recently, within the year. Yeah, ago. he did. Um, but they mentioned... Um, there was like a Beaknet coffee house in, and they went to a theater on Union Street. They were seeing this stuff early. and Yeah. And, you know, Lawrence Ferlinghetti had his bookstore there in San Francisco, City Lights. A lot of this stuff revolved around that bookstore and the experimental artists, painters, and filmmakers who were friendly with Ferlinghetti. So that was what Coppola was trying to emulate was zoetrope when he established it in San Francisco. He wanted to be the new version in a way of Canyon cinema, but it wouldn't just be art film, it would be commercial art films. Okay. Um, this, this just, I mean, this fits the experimental stuff that he was making in college more than uh, 
I mean, even, even once you get to well, T- THX is pretty experimental. Oh no, no, I, mean, I was really about to say to watch it now. THX is a, as the especially the non-updated version, the one without C- CGI. Like right. I, I mean, so much of Lucas's one fascinating thing I've been thinking a lot about rewatching all of his student stuff was because from a photographic standpoint, I guess in his, in the sixties, Lucas being a photographer and a cinematographer was one of his big talents. And THX is distinctly one of the things he's, he's, he, his use of long lenses in there. And I agree. Flattening I agree. stuff is really, yeah. but it also gives you a sense of stuff that applies later. Even when he went and used the flat lenses where he's, doesn't he doesn't give a crap if things look three dimensional? He's he's considered from a compositional standpoint graphically where things are on screen, and then when CG, yeah. sorry sorry go ahead. I I think that's influenced by his real fascination with graphic art. I mean, look what he's collected as an adult: the Norman Rockwell paintings, a lot of World War One art. That kind of representational art was very important to him. And I think it comes, part of it, it comes from a real fine arts perspective also. Very graphically influenced by the art of illustration. A devourer of the comic strips in the daily paper. Real quickly to update our, um, our, our episode on Jack Kirby and George Lucas, on Star Wars. Uh, what comics did, you, did, did Lucas ever talk about? Well, it was Prince Valiant and Terry and the Pirates, the adventure ones, but also the humorous ones, Gasoline Alley. This really kind of corny American humor, Heartland humor, similar to what Disney used in his early shorts, his early animated shorts, that's responsible for the kind of corn-pone dialogue in Star Wars. Okay. You know, I mean, Lucas was not trying to make a Billy Wilder kind of comedy of manners. Okay. Right. Yeah. He was using the kind of dialogue balloons that he saw in comic strips. At least until Lawrence Casting came along. Um, yes. And, and that's why people rem- remember Empire on a different level than they remember Star Wars and Return of the Jedi. I'm reading a little more about his editorial concerns after uh, when he went to the prequels and, all you know, he had all the CGI as his aspect. The editing stuff he was working with. It's not about, it's almost not about cutting or about pacing. It's always about moving, compositing. It's about moving different elements from different shots into this and changing, changing. It's about organizational stuff. You know, it's like, almost like it's, it's the footage. uh, It's made for the editorial assistant, right? Who's got to keep track of everything. Yeah. But I, I just think that ultimately I think the prequels are what really killed any chance that he would go off and make films on his own. Because he was so upset about how he was treated critically on the prequels. As the reviews got worse and worse with each one, he got angrier and angrier. And I heard this from friends of his. He became more and more upset. And I think that just killed. He knew that any film he made was going to be torn apart. I mean, can you say what kind of, like any more specifics on? I, I just feel that he felt his filmmaking skills were assaulted in the bad critical reaction to the prequels. Well, I think what's fascinating as the generation that, that grew up on the prequels now are starting to come maybe to your class, but uh, 
are growing up, the prequels are being less. Okay, one of the things I watched also in prep for this is a movie you're in, which is The People versus George Lucas. Yes. I haven't seen this movie in forever. Um, when was the last time you watched it? Uh, not for a while. I was a little upset with them. They filmed with me for 10 hours and they used 30 seconds of me. I didn't like this movie when it came out. And this movie, even with my initial reaction, this movie is aged terribly. I'm, I'm not just about the consensus of like, it's, 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 one of the pull quotes on the cover is like, this is a great example of geek culture. And I think that's true, but it's also all the weird ownership they feel, the hostility. Yes. That yep. You, you, you sympathize. You have to sympathize with Lucas after watching this movie. Like, yep. So, you know, look, all these issues about what was going to happen to Star Wars and his when i interviewed him you know this is right before return of the jedi but he's looking ahead and he's talking about what he's going to do and the idea that all these dreams and he had a, a lot of dreams about the movie business and how that could change and how he could be a leader and he had big plans for revamping the entire educational system in the united states i just think when he took his four and a half billion dollars and walked away, that's the end of the film game for George Lucas. I mean, he he always said he would stay with it till it wasn't fun anymore. And then he would try to get as much money as possible as he possibly could from what he had built. And I think that's exactly what he did. Um. You mentioned um, we we talked a little bit earlier about the um, the Disney Star Wars shows. Did you have any strong feelings on the Disney the Disney trilogy? Uh, well, I just think once Kathy Kennedy took over, there was a whole different movie sensibility. Okay, you know Kathy Kennedy worked with Spielberg for a reason. She could not have worked with Lucas, really, in the way she worked with Spielberg. And what she learned from Spielberg was really how to craft commercial entertainment and to do so in an artistic way. Okay. And I think she brought that sensibility, but very much the sensibility of commercial cinema. What do you think Lucas saw in her when he asked her to take over? He saw someone who he knew could handle the day-to-day, -day, which is what he hated. Huh. And I think he saw that this was his path to selling Lucasfilm. And he just wanted it to accrue as much value as it could. I mean, really, what difference is it to George Lucas if he sold it for three and a half billion or four and a half billion? Not to mention that his wife is also a multimillionaire. So, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't followed his um, charitable giving. And I knew he, he did support several educational foundations. Um, but I know he had big, big plans in several areas. And none of them happened except making more money. The um, Brian J. Jones book, ends, uh, it's published in 2016, but a lot of the last chapters about the fight to get uh, his art museum made that he was working for in San Francisco and right. Chicago. And yeah. Well, nobody wanted to work with him after they dealt with him in those cities. Really? That was it? He was so stubborn 
and his specific vision and what it had to be. This was a guy, you got to remember, for the last how many films, he didn't have to compromise with anyone. And now all of a sudden, where he's trying to build a museum that's extremely personal to him, he actually has to deal with city councils and supervisors. And he is not used to that. He doesn't like it. It's not fun for him. So I just think, you know, he finally got his location, right? Isn't it down in, in Marina del Rey? That's where that's where it ended up. I, I mean, I, yeah. when I read it in the book, I remember kind of keeping tabs on it throughout the years. But in my head, I thought it was still Chicago. So I, did, I haven't kept No, it. no, no. I think it's Marina del Rey is where it finally ended up. Okay. L- let's do a little imaginary thing. If, if, if Star Wars hadn't been successful, would, would, how do you imagine his career? Like the one movie that, that was made that seemed like it was like partially developed a little by that point was Radio Land Murders, which right. I don't think I've ever seen it. I, I can't, I just remember. It's, it's not a very good movie. It's better than Howard the Duck. Howard the Duck actually has uh, gotten a little bit uh, a renaissance a little lately too. I, I don't know. When I rewatched <laughs> it. it. It's just as bad as it originally was in my mind. But I was but, I was, uh, I was five years old when Howard the Duck came out, and um, I saw a comp- I saw a listicle came out of like, and it, it was really effective to me because it was a lot of uh, disturbing scenes for children that was mainly through practical effects. Or just like transformation right. sequences. It would have things like yeah. stuff from The Thing or American Werewolf in London, um, some stuff from the Nightmare on Elm Street stuff. And it had that transformation, the villain transformation at the end, which that had that effect on me. I remember being scared shitless of that scene. Yeah. But as an adult. So what would George have done if Star Wars hadn't worked, if that hadn't worked? Well, look at what he did before then. He mined his own life. So I believe that he, he would have made a movie about film school. Really? Yes. I absolutely think he would have because he knew that world. Uh, um, and he, there were great characters in it, like Milius and all these other people. And if he was able to turn the dross of his high school experience into the gold of American graffiti, I believe he could have done this whole thing with his, you know, and there were, the, there were movies cut. Kind of, Countercultural movies. There was one about independent weekly papers that starred Jeff Goldblum uh, and the line? John Hurt. Is is that I that William that, Hurt? That's on a that's been I I saw, I saw that recently. That's on. I the can't cartoon. remember the name right now. Oh, it's so good. And the director isn't again the... against the page something like June Micklin Silver. Is that is that her? Yeah. Name? Yeah. yeah, that's a great movie. I think it's uh, Beneath yeah. the Line. Or, I, yeah, that, that's it. I think Beneath the Line. So you know there were those kind of movies. He could have made one of those kind of films during that period. And I think, you know, but once he got on the Star Wars Express, what was the possible motivation to get off of it? You know, I, I really believe, and he said this, that when he decided to hire an outside director from Empire, and that was 100% because he had really discovered on um, Star Wars how much he hated directing. Hmm. He hated the the responsibility. He hated everybody looking at him. He hated being frustrated by other people not understanding what he wanted. He had a very, very hard time with the British crew on Star Wars. He felt he had nobody in his corner over there except Gary Kurtz, who wasn't that effective. And so, you know, he 
he did not like directing in that. And, and I remember his saying that when he was, before he hired Kirsten, he said, I'm going to hire, when I knew I was going to hire someone on Empire, I began to look at what small films could I make while they were making Empire. So he had this idea that literally he would be able to go off and make a film while someone else was making a Star Wars movie, and then he would be done in time to help them edit the Star Wars movie. So it wasn't about him wanting to quit directing, he just didn't want to make big movies. He didn't want to make big movies. Okay. Now, in his mind, he had mostly made personal films. I mean, THX isn't personal, but you can't get more personal than American Graffiti. Yeah. Do you know people had talked to his father before? You? I interviewed his father. I don't know if anybody else did. I interviewed his parents and his sister. Okay. Well, it seems like his dad, what was his dad's specific business? A stationery store. <laughs> Office supplies. A lot of times when it seems like George Lucas, I mean, he was he was in Forbes list, wasn't he, recently? Like, when he has all, more money yeah. than God, yet he still talks, like, with a, a mindset of scarcity. Like, it, all this is his dad dad's businessman coming in? Yes, yes, very much so. And, and his dad, I mean, the only reason he even went to USC was his parents said to him, either get a job or go to community college. And so he went to community college, but as the second year was drawing to a close, he was going to have to face the same question from his parents, which is either get a job or now go to a four-year school. So that was one of the primary reasons he went to USC. He didn't want to have to go get what he, you know, his father would have loved it if he had taken over the stationery store. Okay. Um. Around the time of that uh, Life After Darth article, maybe even a little bit before, Lucas would seem prone to saying, I have become Darth Vader. Like, he, he started saying, I have become my father to a certain extent, but also I am... Um, just, he started doing exactly what he didn't want to be doing, being a businessman as opposed to the filmmaker. What do you Correct. make of that? And, Yeah, I think, you know, look, he was appalled by what he had to deal with, with the board at 20th Century Fox, right? He, he was just appalled by corporate Hollywood. He thought it was had ruined the film business. What has he become? His own version of corporate Hollywood. A man with hundreds of millions of dollars of, in assets, his own film library, the first filmmaker in history, to literally finance and own all of his own work. The only other one I know of is Frederick Wiseman, the documentary filmmaker who owns every foot that he ever shot. Lucas tried to do the same. He went, tried, went back and, you know, he couldn't buy THX from Warner Brothers. They wouldn't sell it to him. Okay. But he bought Star Wars back from Fox, bought Empire back from Fox and Jedi. So he owned all those. He couldn't buy back American Graffiti, and, and that was the one that really soured him on Studio Hollywood. Um, I guess one, one thing I found fascinating, for some random reason, I was watching the God, uh, Godfather 2 the other day, and I had heard someone describe that 
if you want to synthesize really quickly why Godfather works in a sentence, it's uh, it's basically a story about someone trying hard not to and inevitably becoming their parents. And Empire is if if you a certain day of the week, I'll say Empire is my favorite movie of all time. And I think uh-huh. part of that is also a really interesting story about become like the fear of becoming your parents. Absolutely. Yep. I mean, I agree. I think Empire is the greatest film he created. It is his creation. He knew what he wanted to do with the story. He knew what he wanted to do with the characters. And in retrospect, he was very smart to have hired the right director for that film and the right writers for that film. You know, Lee Brackett's contribution is vastly underestimated. Okay. You know, I, I taught her work in film noir classes I taught. She was a brilliant screenwriter, and the darkest elements of the Empire Strikes Back screenplay were designed by her. I mean, I, I, there's that really cool, um, you look online, there's a great transcript, 80-page transcript of the Raiders uh, story sessions. But, I mean, do, is there anything that came out of Lee Brackett and Lucas's sessions? What? Well, only Kasdan, I mean, she was dead by the time I did my book, but but Kasdan said that she was the dominant writer on that draft. He focused more on the dialogue. She focused more on the plot. That's an oddity for Lucas, isn't that? <laughs> yeah, I, I, the thing that I keep coming back to about Empire that, or that gets me is that um, it's such a brilliant sequel to a, child, a, a childhood adventure movie because it's about becoming an adult involves a lot of humility and being knocked on your ass, even if it's still... Uh, um, and resolving the edible conflict. Yeah. It is in every father-son relationship on one level or another. Um, while we're on the line of speculation, what do you think would have happened with Jedi, maybe the other sequels, if toys hadn't become such a big influence on them? Well, he loved the Ewoks before they were Ewok toys. He always wanted to make a movie with the Ewoks. Wasn't there supposed to be an early version where it was Wookiees and stuff like that? Yeah, but once he shrunk them, you know, I mean, he he liked the idea of a attractive little furry animal. Once a Disney kid, always a Disney kid, huh? That's it. Well, to him, the toy merchandising was part of the um, appeal of the films. It's always he, been that he way. He loved the fact that kids would buy this stuff and use their imagination to play with it. That was his justification for making the millions and millions of dollars in merchandising he made and how he would basically sell almost everything with the Star Wars brand. I mean, like I'm a generation and there's been multiple generations since then that have benefited from that too. So I, yeah. I, I don't want to be someone that, that talks down about it, but I keep, you, you keep hearing earlier versions like Gary Kurtz before he passed was prone to talk about different versions. Jedi was going to go down like the, you know, Harrison Ford wanted to die. Uh, well, remember the original title was Revenge of the Jedi. Yeah. And the original script was much more revenge-driven. It got smoothed out near the end. And I don't think also that Richard Marquand was a particularly strong director. And Lucas was on set far more frequently for uh, Jedi than he was for um, Empire. How much were you on set for Jedi? 
uh, a week. Okay. When they were at Pinewood. I was rereading your uh, uh, stuff about dealing with Jabba and their dynamic of uh, yeah. Lucas contradicting Mark Wand. And then when he found out he contradicted him, he tried to back off. Yeah, Mark Wand had a rough time. He had Lucas looking over his shoulder the whole time. I think, and, and this is my speculation, I believe it really bothered him that Irvin Kirshner got better reviews as a director than he did as the director of Star Wars. Okay. I really felt that he felt that Kirshner had embarrassed him on some level. Okay. And that he was therefore going to be much more on top of what was happening with Jedi so that he felt his influence would be a stronger aspect in Jedi than it was in Empire. I feel it like, didn't Kirshner always play it up that he turned Lucas down about coming back for a third movie? Yes. Okay. But honestly, I'm not sure that Lucas wanted to work with him again. Because he was also really upset with how over budget the movie and over scale. Yes. And Kirshner didn't give a shit. Kirshner was not afraid of George Lucas. Not on any level. Kirshner was his old teacher, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, I don't. I, maybe he taught one class at USC. Okay. I think he was more an adjunct who came in and taught when he wasn't making a movie. They were just, they just overlapped with each other. Yeah. Kirshner was a character. I interviewed Kirshner before Jedi. I had interviewed him on one of his earlier films when I was a journalist. So he was a tough nosed guy. I, I love Kirshner. I love Kirshner's yeah. movies. What, what was, yep. what was he like? He was just, you know, he had seen the world of advertising. He had a really interesting background and he was a real New Yorker, very pugnacious. And if you told him you can't do that, he'd go, fuck you. You can't tell me I can't do that. And that was some of his attitude with George. And I don't think Lucas appreciated it. So I guess we mentioned Coppola. You you, you said you're not a fan of Coppola's um, three returns, but Coppola is still supposedly in the fall, supposed to finally shoot Megalopolis. Um, and he's putting I his know, money up for He's it. been talking about that for 20 years. I covered the very beginning of the Zoetrope studio in Los Angeles when they were doing... Um, One from the Heart? Yeah. I was a reporter for the LA Times then, and I was all over that story. And I did many interviews with Francis, and I was in the trailer, The Magic Silver Bullet, where he was directing the film. And so, you know... Um, I was very well acquainted with Francis's dreams, right? Okay. And, and ultimately, neither of them achieved their dream. I mean, Lucas did to a far bigger extent than Coppola because Coppola just spent as fast as he made. And Lucas, as we all know, was parsimonious. They, they, Lucas especially seems like... I, I ran across a quote the other day of Lucas where he said when he was talking about spending on his own movies, he's like, I don't believe in debt. And I didn't know if he was thinking of his father or his other, he was father, or his big his, brother Coppola there. No, I was thinking of his father. His father did not believe in debt. Well, Coppola at my point at that point definitely <laughs> did believe. Yes. Uh, believe in debt. So, yeah, I just think at a certain point, I, I think making really good movies is hard to do as you get older and older. And since I'm there right now, I can 
see this from a slightly different perspective than I used to. But the number of great musicians in their 80s, number of great painters in their 80s, the number of great um, stage actors in their 80s is, is pretty wide. The number of great filmmakers in their 80s is very small. And I just think as time goes on, you lose your edge. You lose the quality that made your early work interesting. Now, Bunuel was effective till the very end almost. There's always exceptions to these rules. Um, Michael Hanukkah mm. is still great, I believe, no matter how old he is. Kurosawa, no matter how old he was. Speaking but of for a lot of American movie makers, I taught for many years a class in Billy Wilder. Past some like it hot, past the apartment, there isn't a single really good Billy Wilder movie after the apartment. I've had trouble getting through his last decade. Um, it, because the films are filmmakers have trouble as they reach an age where they are really not in touch with the audience they were in touch with when they were young. And so to be a really good filmmaker in your 70s and 80s is, I think, one of the hardest things to do and that's why so few people have done it well as much as i'm romanticizing what lucas could be making after watching re-watching all his stuff today and thinking him going back to a thx mindset i was really struck by other i was trying to compare 60s experimental work with what i would current experimental work and mm -hmm. you get the sense that lucas if he started making it again right now unless just he he's he's you don't have that young energy you don't have the um desire to be seen as strong to be known exactly and i think the idea of putting out something on youtube with that many people watching it would freak him out <laughs>
Do do you have to re-review it for every new edition? <laughs> no, I didn't have to do the re-review. I would have refused. Okay. I was at the LA Times by that point. But I, I will remember, I dealt with his outrage, and he was a formidable force when he's screaming at you over the phone. The fight in Filmmakers about, I, I couldn't understand it because he, he was threatening the Director's Guild about something where, and it was basically like they wanted to have a second AD apprentice, which I, and I couldn't tell exactly why he was upset about that, whether it was like a possible spy, an extra person that was on the payroll or what. But Probably all of the above. But then he was just going on about, I was like, I know all the 15 best filmmakers working right now and they don't need the director's guild. Like we, you know, the only thing that could stop them from making good films is if the police comes and stops them from making good films. <laughs> oh, well, look, it was an exciting time to be a filmmaker in the seventies. I wish I'd been there. And I, and there's a part of me that wishes there's more Coppola's right now, younger Coppola's yep, now. I, I do too. But have you seen the Northman? I haven't seen it yet. No. He is the new Coppola. You love the Northmen. Okay. I, I think Robert Eggers is a real film artist, like the kind of, I mean, to me, him and Denise Villeneuve, those are the guys who are the equivalent of the 70s filmmakers. I, uh, I'm i a big uh, uh, Ari Aster fan, but, and uh, Denny Villeneuve's like definitely one, someone who seems yeah. to be working the studio system and doing good work right now. Exactly. Um. So, okay, one other factor I wanted to, to play into this and to be understanding is um, how much of, you know, Lucas also did a semi-retirement between Jedi and Phantom Menace to become a father. And then uh, in 2013, he had a surrogate child with uh, Melody Hobson. Right. How much is that, is that a factor of keeping him from throughout the years? Like, there's, this is... I mean, I think he definitely, I remember talking to him about it. He didn't want to be an absentee father. He didn't want to be the guy shooting across the globe while his wife is struggling to take care of the kids. But he felt that he had built himself at Skywalker Ranch with a cushion that even if he had to go for a few weeks and shoot somewhere else, he would be able to do all the post at home. So he was really structuring his life to be a father and to be a filmmaker at the same time. And he was going to do that by rarely venturing out of Marin County, unless it was to have to go, you know, on location or something else. But I cannot tell you, he so viscerally hated movie making by the time he was done with Star Wars. I mean, he went on for hours about it, how it had damaged his health, his psyche. He felt it was ruining his marriage. I mean, he just, he, he was the most unhappy filmmaker I had ever interviewed. Marshall Lucas, some of her quotes of, of their breakup was saying that he couldn't, he would bring it home with him, basically. All I know is, is that he he really felt that he could control the process in a way. And I think one of the faults of the three prequels is nobody else really had a voice in those. Yeah. I, I, and that wasn't true of any of the previous films. That, that, that seemed to be a consensus that came about with um, the, it's also kind of the dark side of auteurism too, where especially being that position where if you if you don't have 
if you don't develop good collaborative tools and and good friction with some, I feel like that 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 theory gained a lot of sway after a certain point. Yeah. I mean, how many? Um, I always had this pet theory about Lucas. Seems like he did a lot of drafts of stuff, but when you look, the so much of the development of the first Star Wars is readily available. You have like his first draft turned into a comic book, right? And I've always felt like the stuff in the first draft feels like stuff that was in the Phantom Menace, where it just felt underwritten a little. Yeah, I mean, it was. I, I will say one of the greatest thrills would be able to examine all of his pencil-written first drafts, which I was allowed to look through. You yeah. Know? Yeah, and it was amazing to see the detail he put into those early drafts. Now, many of the things evolved. Two different characters would be consolidated into one. But on those pencil-written drafts, you can see his imagination racing along. And that was really fun to see. I think he lost that joy. I just don't think he could capture that again. And ultimately, after the critical brickbats that followed the three prequels, that's when I think he said, you know what? I don't even want to really continue with Star Wars anymore. I'm going to sell to Disney. And I'm going to let Kathy run it. And I just want out. Part of the reason I personally think like I have more, I, I, I was a defender ish of the prequels when they came out. You had to acknowledge that like, there's a certain, you know, just dramaturgical roughness to them that like there's chemistry between people. There's a flat rubberiness to this. My point earlier, yeah. I was going to make about the, um, his compositions in the sixties versus uh, whenever he became into C CG was just all he, he, the CG just, he's, there's just, it's all this stuff has moved around with no weight and which I mean, a lot of people pointed out, but like, he's just worried about composition by that point. Um, what part of the reason I think I have more ammo to that is that there's great stuff in the Disney trilogies, but especially there just seems to be a bigger school of like, you still don't have a singular creative force, strong creative force. And I like Ryan Johnson a lot. And J.J. Abrams right. is clearly a very uh, uh, engaging filmmaker to a lot of people. But it's just not. You no. miss George Lucas. No. And basically, J.J. Abrams was trying not to rock the franchise. He, he played it very safe. Yeah. Ryan Johnson, at least, is willing to take more chances. And I think, you know, um, look, you saw the firing of, who was it, Miller and Lord. So yeah. I don't think Kathy Kennedy is giving up creative control to anybody. Mm. She's still there and she still takes it really seriously. I, I know her very well. She is one of the most firm. Like, there's just no nonsense with her. You can't pull, and she's seen everything in her years between working for Stephen and working for George. She has seen everything. The tiny bits that have come out about what Lucas's treatments for the sequel trilogy are supposed to be, personally, again, as someone who's a little bit of a defender for the prequels, they feel like an, a, a great sequel to all the movies, which the Disney sequel barely feels like. Right. There's some really interesting elements. Like, I still find it most fascinating how he was going to pay off midi-chlorians and it was going to be this commercial thing where corporations found a way of using the force. Like it just really interesting ideas like that. 
Um, do you have any info on, because supposedly whenever uh, Lucas sold over, it was with they were going to use the treatments, or at least he was given a gentleman's agreement that they were going to use them, and they used elements, but do you have any inside info on that? No. Um, I, I know he regarded those treatments very personally. You know, he put a lot of thought into them, and, and he did research for them. But um, I, I would be really interested to see how his treatments differed from even the three films have been, that have been made since he gave up control. And the sense I always got was that Kathy, in particular, I, I just think they wanted to bring a new voice in. They wanted to revitalize Star Wars. And I really think that George needed to be gone for that to happen. I mean, isn't the irony, like if you don't count the streamers, like the feature films of Star Wars is stalled at the very least, if not more. Yeah. But, you know, look, Adam Driver, you know, is, draws a lot of young women into Star Wars in addition to young men. I mean, again, the, the last three films were very popular with my students at school. Whereas the prequels were not. What were they saying about the uh, last three films? Well, I mean, they grew up on the prequels like you did. So oh, to I, them, was, I didn't grow up on the prequels. I, I was well, I was in college by the time the prequels came out. They grew up on the prequels. And so what they were saying is that was their Star Wars universe. And when the new film started, they thought they were so much better than the prequels. Huh. Okay. That... They were, they were re-excited by Star Wars. They're dynamic movies. I'm not. I don't want to take away from take away from that. There's a part of me just like when I was watching those shorts. I was wondering, like, because it's Lucas sometimes in interviews would say just like the technical stuff in the 60s was the thing that bugged him. And that's always the reason he justified, I need to start digital cinema. He's got to have an iPhone by now. He can probably put a telephoto lens, some kind of telephoto lens on an iPhone. I'm telling you, Shane, he well may have made a dozen, two dozen films, but we're never going to see him. I, I think he has very little incentive to share his work with the general public. You know, Dale, I'm, I'm just happy with that speculation. Like I, I, I mean, yes, I'd be really interested to see it, but I just want to, well, I think we all would, but that, I don't think he responds to that interest particularly. (laughs) I think, I mean, just George Lucas got beat up way too much. He was too, he's too great. He, he's, he's just one of the greatest filmmakers of all time. And it is unfortunate that he's an example of success, making someone not want to make movies anymore. Yeah. Yeah. uh... And, but also an indication of how film is a difficult medium for one person to remain total control of. Film is a collaborative medium. And ultimately, he didn't always feel comfortable collaborating that closely. You know, I mean, I think his collaboration with his actors on Star Wars was minimal. Minimal. And 
he was always collaborative with his peers. He took what Scorsese and Coppola and Matthew Robbins said. That he took all that very seriously. He listened to his friends. But I think ultimately, he wasn't interested in really working with a strong creative collaborator. It's tricky because as much like the, the obvious one for a lot of film fans to say Kasdan was a key influence or, or Marshall Lucas is a key, key right. collaborator that he has, that he has to listen to. But there's something so singular about like, it's the give and take of it. Like the, the prequel ones, especially like in you, you lose out so much is because they're very singular, but sometimes they're also just like, pretty silly and, and plastic too and 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 boring i mean sometimes you're kind of watching paint dry um i i, I sh really quickly have you did you read any of the uh, jw rensler books on star wars no oh, okay i'll tell you my interest pretty much ended on a certain level um when i finished my book and again i had to do an updated edition i participated in interviews so i certainly have followed lucas publicly um and I went to been to every Star Wars film that's been made multiple times, but I'm really not that interested in what he would be doing right now, because I think his perspective has gotten skewed. He doesn't see the world in the same way he saw it when he was a hungry young filmmaker. And that's the George Lucas we respond to. Yeah. The Lucas of American Graffiti and the first Star Wars film. One one of the things I was looking up before this um, movies that he's produced in the last few years. I remember when Red Tails came out, and that was two thousand nine, yep. and and that was something he talked about wanting to do for a long time. Well, the, the, in um in the uh, Brian J. Jones book, they talk about his wife influencing it, and he wanted to make a trilogy on African American pilots in World War Two, going to World War Two, and then coming back and facing segregation. And it sounds right. like an interesting trilogy. And then when I started reading the reviews, that's when I was like, oh, now I remember this movie. Like there was, it, it, there was a big nothing burger to the movie. It was so lightweight. And that he had a serious subject that he gave a kind of lightweight treatment to. It had some really cool um, uh, dog fights, which you were interested in Lucas do, still doing dog fights, but it's, that's not, it's no, not, not enough to build a movie. On and look, look at the film, A Soldier Story. That's a serious film about what it's like to be black in the military. Mm. He kind of avoided all that. Yeah. Um, the other movie I um, completely, completely forgot about was from 2015 that he, uh, I, I, I vague on even what his contribution is. It's called Strange Magic. It's a, it's an animated updating of Midsummer's Night's Dream. I think he made, he said for his children, it's on Disney Plus. I put it on. I think I, I, I didn't even know about that. I'll be honest with you. I never heard of it. I turned it off after six minutes. I may watch it one day oh. and as a curiosity. And it's, I, I don't want to say turned off after six minutes. It wasn't that it was just unbearable or bad or anything. It was more, I need to do some real research for this interview. This movie's not going to yeah. tell me much. You know, I think maybe the metaphor now, and I hate to say it, is kind of like Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> He's sitting up there in his vault, and you know, there's gold coins all around him. And my guess is he's pretty happy. Is that uh, Carl Barks? I, I just think it's really interesting that here we are in 2022 and we're still talking about George Lucas. A guy who you could say his career peaked in 1977. 
Yeah. And we are still talking about him in earnest for an hour. And we could keep on going. So I think, you know, let's not forget how impactful that is. The, in the book mentioned some uh, crazy incident, like um, that article, Life After Darth, had this really fascinating thing where it was talking about um, uh, where Lucas could put out his uh, stuff. And it was funny as a mention from 2005 where it said there are these online sources like Film Movement or Cineclix or Netflix. Flix. Netflix was the third midget. What? Small independent movies. Well, anyway, Lucas seemed like I, I I saw a quote where he said something like this is a, he pre predicted streaming like fifteen ten years earlier. There's a quote from ninety four where he talks about the Amazon model like a year before Amazon goes public. Huh. Like he still saw. Look, he's a smart guy and he understands media. Mm. He spent a lot of time thinking about it. So. Uh, I did want to ask you, are you, so you're still teaching at the, uh, or are you the... No, I'm retired from teaching. I'm um, writing a new book about film. What are you writing? It's called Senior Moments. It's how aging has been portrayed in movies. So that's what you think about Michael Haneke? how much that has changed in the um, 21st century. What kind of stuff are you focusing on? Well, I'm... I'm like drawing a dividing line, I think, with the graduate, what it means to be old changes because all of a sudden Anne Bancroft is old. So you have, um, you know, the, the old Biddy movies or whatever happened to Baby Jane, you know, you don't see that stuff anymore. So it's been interesting how Hollywood has changed. Liam Neeson becomes an action star at the age of 70. Have you noticed any... Is- I guess, is the graduate your defining line for where the... It's, it's where I'm starting, yeah. Well, I was going to ask about female ageism, where, like, you have those... What was um, um, the Manchurian Candidate, where uh, uh, Lawrence Harvey's four years difference between Angela Lansbury, but Angela Lansbury's right. mother. Exactly, yeah. I, I'm going to talk a lot about both female and male aging. Okay. I just watched The Straight Story, I haven't which seen is that. really kind of brilliant. You've never seen that? No, I haven't seen it forever. It's on Disney oh my Plus God. right now. It... Yeah, so it holds up so well. I think I got the DVD just right over here, but I have I haven't watched yeah. it forever. I haven't watched. Yeah, it, it holds up really well. So, so I'm working on that, and um, and hopefully I'll be done with that this year, and it'll come out next year, and uh, we'll see where we'll go from there. Well, I was going to ask about the North Carolina School of Arts. Were you there during? Yeah, I I taught. I was there for 22 years. Okay, and. So you had that. Whole... I was the dean. I was the dean for seven years. Then I taught producing and I taught cinema studies for fifteen years. So you had that whole murderers row go through. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah, they were all Danny, uh, David Gordon Green graduated before I got there, but Danny McBride, Jody Hill, Craig Zobel, all those guys were students under me. I'm a big fan of Aaron Katz. Did you have him? Yes. Aaron Katz is great. Um. Dale Pollock, thank you for doing this. Um, Sure, Shane. It's been a pleasure.